Now, I don't think he was trying to purchase one here. I don't. No. I don't, no. So we have our first sighting of yet another bicycle theft. Welcome to For You The War's Over, a podcast about Second World War Prisoner War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. And in this episode, we are covering Flight Lieutenant John Talbot Lovell Shaw. Great name. Great, strong name. Yeah. Strong name, as we like to say. 24-year-old, and actually didn't spend that amount of time in captivity. It's fairly no. quick, I think. I can't tell you off the top of my head what the, the quickest one is. Yeah, he's effectively home within the year, which, mm. is, which is pretty good. Pretty so, rapid. Pretty rapid. Now, let's cover a little bit about Flight Lieutenant John Shaw, shall we? So, he was born on the 29th of April 1917 in Croydon and was educated at St. Lawrence College in Ramsgate. He was granted a short service commission as an acting pilot officer from 1936 and then he was posted to 148 Bomber Squadron. Now, it's interesting on his reports, it doesn't give a peacetime profession, so he effectively went straight from school into the Royal Air Force. So he served at Scampton through to June 1937, then he became a pilot officer in August of 1937, a flying officer in February of 1939, and then a flight lieutenant in September of 1940. Now, obviously being part of a Bomber Squadron, war started people get moved around and everything else so he converted on to wellington bombers and he joins nine squadron out of rf hollington in suffolk now his report goes into some details about how he came to be captured particularly with regards to the flight that he was on but there was also a subsequent inquiry after he got back because the circumstances around the issues with the airplane shall we say were needed to be looked at what we do know though so he was on his 10th operational flight and this was the 27th of march 1941 and there was going to be a bombing raid on cologne which was a six aircraft mission of wellington's from of hollington including shaw's wellington now the aircraft took off at quarter to eight in the evening and the ground bases received a signal at 22.37, saying that they were over the target, which was actually an hour later than they were expected. And then at 22.48, there was an SOS sent from the aeroplane, which was followed by, I am forced to land, good night. Okay. That's all they heard. Effectively, there had been some issues with the aeroplane. So if we go and have a look at Shaw's report, he says, I was returning from bombing Cologne on the night of the 27th of March, when at 12,000 feet, my starboard engine packed up. It started up again, and then five seconds later, both engines stopped. It was impossible to start them again, and at 8,000 feet, I began to get rid of my crew, leaving the aircraft myself at 1,500 feet. Now, the subsequent investigation, so there were two pilots on board a Wellington. So Shaw was the first pilot, and then there was a young man called James Long, who we know later on. <laughs> You'd go on to have an interesting career. He would certainly go on to have an interesting career. He was the second pilot. Now, there appears to have been a level of confusion in the operation of the aeroplane, because the subsequent report after Shaw got back spoiler alert, he gets back, was that there has actually been some confusion with the fuel management system on the aeroplane. And what you've seen there is the first engine packing up because of fuel starvation and then suddenly coming back in again because there's been some transfer of fuel across. However, then both engines stop because both engines have been starved by fuel and through the selection of the fuel system, they were unable to restart those engines again. So unfortunately, it was an avoidable loss, but 
in this situation, they aren't they aren't left with very many options in the dark in the middle of the night, having just been on a bombing raid. Uh, so he jumped at fifteen hundred feet and he landed in a football field, but damaged his ankle as he did it. Now all of the crew had managed to get out, mm-hmm. so all of these crew eventually become prisoners of war. He says, I tried to destroy my parachute and then hid it, as it's very difficult to set parachutes on fire because they appear to be treated with some fire-resistant substance, which does make perfect sense. Mm -hmm. If you're going to jump from a burning aeroplane, you kind of want your parachute not to burn as it goes. He says, it's best to try and cut them up into shreds with a knife. Kept about 12 yards of my parachute cord, which I managed to conceal in the back of my tunic, and succeeded in bringing home with him. So, useful thing. He was already preparing materials that he might need for later on. He says he started walking along the road heading west, and that was at around 11.30 British time. And at about three o'clock in the morning, he arrived at a small village and went to the church, but found that it was locked. So he tried unsuccessfully to discover the vicarage. I then went back to a farm and tried to rouse the inmates by throwing gravel at the windows. I did not succeed in doing this, so I went to sleep in the barn. At 06.30 hours, the owner of the farm came out, and I told him that I was a British aviator. He called his wife down, and she gave me something to eat. Meanwhile, he went off. He returned half an hour later with a local padre who could speak a little English. The padre advised me to allow myself to be handed over to the Dutch police. I went to his house and he got me a lift in a vegetable cart and I was taken to another house where the occupant gave me something to eat and called in a Dutch doctor to have a look at my ankle. So this is the first sign of him getting any treatment following his bailout. The doctor said that it was too late to do anything about getting me away. So I had been seen and this had been reported locally. I then went up to the bathroom to have a wash and found that civilian clothes, money and papers had been put out for me and that the window of the bathroom had been left open. But in a view of the state of my ankle, I could not take advantage of these obvious preparations. Nice as they are from Mm. the Dutch there to try and give him a chance to get away. Uh, It's totally understandable. He says, I went downstairs again, leaving the clothes, papers and money in the bathroom. My host explained that they could not get me away, but that they would not ring up the police without my permission, which I gave them. A Dutch policeman arrived and took up guard over me, and a major of the German Air Force came and then collected me with a car. I was asked if I had any firearms, and I replied that I'd thrown them away, but I was not searched. That German Air Force major then tried to question me on my aircraft, but I did not answer. And I was then taken to a police station where another Dutch doctor came and looked at my foot. I found the rest of the crew were there, with the exception of one of them. Although they were not supposed to talk to each other, he did manage to warn them about answering any questions. We were then put in a car and driven to some barracks in Amsterdam. And in the bus were four other sergeants from a Whitley bomber that had obviously been shot down as well. We arrived there about four o'clock on the 28th, so the afternoon of the following day. And on the journey, guards sat between us, but we managed to speak to each other. And on arrival in the Amsterdam barracks, we were put into separate cells where he was told that one of the guards, and in particular one of the officers in German Air Force uniform, was actually a Gestapo agent. So quite interesting that the Gestapo were evidently involved mm. in the initial pickups from shot down crew in this instance. Particularly this early in the war as well. I mean, we're talking about 1941. Well, March of 41, yeah, yeah, so very early. So it may not have shocked me or surprised me quite so much later in the war once things like, not that it's relevant here, but things like the commando order whereby there was much more of a top-down directive for the Gestapo to be directly involved. And we have seen in previous episodes whereby, such as with the Commando Order and uh, Vitrulik and Jones's episode, That's right. whereby the Gestapo were basically waiting for them. Mm. But that was a bit later in the war. 
it's much rarer to see Gestapo so directly involved at this stage of A, capture, and B, this stage of the war. And particularly wearing uniforms of the German Air Force rather than their actual Gestapo. So they're undercover. So having been flung into a cell, he states that there was a bed, table and chair in there. And they were able to communicate with each other by hammering on the walls. And a little bit later, some food was brought in. So rather unsurprisingly, bread, sausage and ersatz coffee. Some of that lovely acorn coffee again. Now, Shore pretended to need to go to the lavatory every half an hour in the hope of seeing one of his colleagues. And in so doing, he also managed to get the guards to a point where they were pretty slack. As in, they were so used to him having to go to the toilet on a regular basis that they stopped being too vigilant. And he actually stated that if he hadn't been so lame and injured in his ankle, he probably could have got away. And they weren't held in this barrack cell for all that long, so they were told that the next morning they would be leaving for a reception camp. Now, we're pretty familiar with this reception camp because they'd be on their way to Dulegluft. However, they're not there yet. And they were taken by train from Amsterdam and they arrived in Frankfurt around about 8 o'clock that night. What I find interesting is actually you can sense his sense of disappointment because not dissimilar to others that we've seen clearly was itching to escape but his ankle was pretty injured. He's already stated that if he hadn't been lame he could have got away when having to go to the toilet all, all that time and he states again that while waiting for the train he noticed many opportunities for escaping then. So you can feel his sense of disappointment here and clearly his personality and drive to escape is there from a very very early stage because at this stage he's only been captured for about 24 hours. From Frankfurt station they then waited in the Red Cross buffet for the bus to take them to Dulagluft. So having arrived at Dulagluft, the clothes were taken away for presumably checking and they were given alternative clothing. However, their clothes were returned the next day. And while they were waiting, he was given some bread, cheese and more coffee for his evening meal. The following day, in the afternoon, the camp commandant came in and had a chat with him. He had heard him chatting to some of the other sergeants next door and so he was fairly well prepared for some of the questioning that was coming his way. Now, rather amusingly, he states that when Major Rumpel came into his room, he told him that he could not stand up due to his injury, but in actual fact he had no intention of doing so anyway. And he was interrogated around things like his squadron number, trying to put him at his ease, asking him about his bombing of the towns, the mission, place where it started, where they took off. However, while he gave nothing away, the interrogator's attitude remained friendly throughout and casual. And then in the end only stayed about 10 minutes, which is presumably because they got absolutely nothing out of him. Mm. So having failed to get anything out of him directly, I bet you can't guess what they tried next. Oh, was it that Red Cross form? That it was. Oh, it you was. amaze me. I know. Isn't it shocking? I mean, who could have seen that coming? No, I couldn't see that coming at all. Not at all. Hauptmann von Axen, the security officer, came into his room soon after his arrival with a long sheet of paper with a Red Cross printed on top. He stated that this form was purely for Red Cross purposes and would not be used for anything else, but we'd be sent to the Red Cross at Geneva. Now, we have heard that line Many, many times. Many times. And uh, amongst the questions were the following. Name, number, rank, all perfectly standard. Yep. Station number, squadron, squadron number, squadron commander, home address, and so on and so forth. I certainly would have got a touch suspicious by the time you got to station number, given that it was by no means legally required for them to provide to, to be identified by the protecting powers. Now, he does say that he filled in his name, number, and rank, his home address, and his wife's address. Now... I'm not entirely sure what the difference is between his home address and his wife's address. Good point. Yes, good point. I, I assume by home address he meant maybe his parents or the home that he grew up in. That would make sense. And while technically this is over and above what was actually required of him, it actually wasn't that uncommon for them to at least provide addresses on the basis that if this form ever did end up in Red Cross hands, then they could at least directly inform 
their loved ones. So it does does make sense. They have gone a little bit beyond what was required of them and given a bit of intelligence away. It's probably not the most concerning from the British intelligence perspective, but it also means that it gives them at least a little bit of reassurance that their loved ones will be informed that they have been captured rather than killed in action. Absolutely. And, And as this is quite an early escape and the report back obviously details quite a lot about this bogus Red Cross form, that would have obviously been very useful to other prisoners of war that would have been taken from the end of 1941 onwards to say expect you might see this form coming up it's a bit of a bit of a naughty one yes yes indeed having filled out this red cross form only partially the german interrogator did try to persuade him to fill in the the other details such as the service matter names of his crew members etc so having got through the first the interrogation and then the Red Cross form charade, he states that there was no further subsequent interrogation and he was issued with clothes and free to go into the main encampment of Dulag Luft. And he actually says that the food and accommodation at Dulag Luft were much better than at his Stalag. Now that could be because it was a bit more established. Yeah, uh, certainly settled. It was fairly standard practice, even at this relatively early stage, that downed airmen ended up at Dulaulu. So I suspect that's probably the reason why is it's just a bit more standardised and s- settled. And also, there was a fairly high turnover at Dulaulu, so you'd yeah. imagine that they would have had a reasonable amount of provisions there for people coming and going. Whereas, of course, the camp system was building up, mm-hmm. and you're not going to know how often people are going to be released. So it probably would have been fairly difficult to cater for the very large numbers of people that were there to keep a standard number. Yes. And while he was at Dulagluft, he actually states that the prisoners of war were building two tunnels while in Dulagluft, which, which in and of itself is quite impressive given that, as you just said, there is extremely high turnover. It is just a reception camp. It's not a permanent camp. Mm. And so for the prisoners that are on their way through Dulagluft to have started a tunnel and made some headway is actually quite impressive. It is. It will come as no shock then mm-hmm. when you hear some of the names that were involved in this. Oh, did they end up being prolific escapers by any chance? Well, I'll let you decide that because amongst them were Wing Commander Harry Day. Well, we know that name. Indeed. Major Dodge and one squadron leader, Bushel. Ah, interesting. Who could have seen that name coming up? Indeed. Now, he he does give a couple of other names that are perhaps less well-known, and he also states that those were the names that I knew, but the rest of the party was made up of 18 other people. Now, call me suspicious, but if I was to see the (laughs) other 18 names involved, something tells me I may recognise a few more of them. I suspect so, Yes. yes. So it's interesting you mentioned there Great Escape because as I said before Shaw's second pilot Cookie Long was also captured and he ended up going to Stalagruf 3. Doesn't detail it here in the report but he was later one of those involved with the Great Escape and sadly he was one of the 50 murdered by the Gestapo in retaliation so Mm -hmm. uh, there is a little extra Great Escape linked to this particular escape. Yes there is. So interestingly Shaw does touch upon a little bit more about the interrogation methods while in Dulagluft because he says interpreters usually dropped in for a chat about tea time. Bayer, our interpreter, said he did not like the Nazi regime. He would talk to us about our letters from home and try and find out about bomb damage, etc. All these conversations were conducted in a very friendly manner. Prisoners of war would be confronted with the interpreter trying to stimulate a discussion and then leave the room suddenly. There were about four or five interpreters at Dulag. They would also try to discuss new aircraft types with us. There was no anti-room there but a wireless or propaganda room. We never sat and talked there but always went back to our own room if we wished to discuss such matters. And also, if we wish to talk about escaping, we went into the compound. Now, there follows a very brief but rather entertaining paragraph, which was, The following drink was issued at Dulag. Rhine wine, Dunkirk whiskey, and also beer at the little inns that we were allowed to visit on our walks. The little inns have come up before on other other cases as a way of getting information out of people, so... 
Yes, indeed. It's the next sentence I quite enjoyed, which was, everyone seemed very happy at Dulag Luft, which if you're being plied with wine, whiskey and beer, I imagine everyone was. Yeah, absolutely. I am, I confess, rather intrigued as to what exactly Dunkirk whiskey was. I thought you might be. It, it, well, indeed, it may just simply be whiskey that was captured at Dunkirk. So he was to stay at Dulag Luft until the 15th of April, having been captured on the 27th of March. So that's a stay of just over th- two weeks, two to three weeks. Pretty standard. Pretty standard for Dulag Luft, yeah. Yep. He says that it, at 0800 hours, the bus drove up and we were marched out, checked through the gate, but not searched. We drove to the goods yard at Frankfurt Station where the train was waiting for them. As the train started, I went into the lavatory. There was a small window with two hinges and I loosened the screws, leaving the window like this until I needed it. I then went back into the carriage. So pretty much the first opportunity upon leaving Dulaglo, he is already thinking about escape, which tallies with what I said earlier about you could feel his sense of disappointment at not being able to take the opportunities. Well, he's had three weeks to recover his ankle. He's probably in a slightly better, more fighting fit condition and is instantly going into the bathroom to loosen the windows in order to try and initiate an escape. So on this train, there were ordinary railway maps in the carriage and they were allowed to look at them for a while. As he wanted to head towards the Swiss frontier, he knew he had to get out of the train fairly soon, so during the daytime. Now, the train they were travelling on was a goods train with a post wagon, so mail, a mail wagon behind it. And he actually managed to jump out of the window of the carriage, but unfortunately he was heard and an alarm cord was pulled. Now, while he did manage to get out of the train and pick himself up, he made for a wooded bank on one side of the railway crossing the line to get there. Nonetheless, the guards managed to get out of the train and started firing their guns at him, and he was caught fairly quickly, who was actually pretty annoyed with them at having made this escape attempt and pushed him back down the bank towards the train. Now, rather amusingly, and this shows some degree of incompetence by the German guards, one of the guards took his coat off him, which held all his food, and then handed it straight back to shore without removing anything, without even checking, it appears. It then took another half an hour for the train to start up again after his escape, and as a consequence, they arrived late and missed the connection that they were aiming for. So they were heading towards Stahlhof 1, which is at Barth, which is located on the northern Baltic coast of Germany. Now... We have come across this camp a little bit before, but I thought I might just go into a little bit more detail, just re-familiarise ourselves with it. So as I say, it was located on the northern Baltic coast of Germany, which is an interesting location to place a camp because we've seen many times before that the Baltic ports were an obvious destination for an escaping prisoner of war and also not a million miles away from standard bombing targets of ports, dockyards, that sort of stuff. So it's not an obvious location in which to locate a prisoner of war camp. Usually they are inland. Famously, Stagloof 3 is in the middle of woodland. Those were more standard styles of locations for not necessarily just a, a camp in a sandy area, but it's more about the location, the geographical location that was much more normal as represented by those camps than being placed on a coastline. Hmm. However, it was, that that does become significant later on. Now, it initially opened in 1941, but closed and then reopened again in 1942. So it was only open for about six months. They closed it up and then reopened it again in October 42, actually. Now, it held mainly Americans, but there were some Canadians and, of course, British, by the fact that we have shore here as well. And it held around about 9,000 prisoners of war. Now, there were a number of prisoners of war that were held at Barth that we will have heard of, including Jimmy James, yes, Wingsday again, mm-hmm. and Jimmy Buckley. Ah. Again, all, all of great Grid's escape fame. Yes. And as a side, it also held Cookie Long. 
he was oh, there okay. for a while as well. Okay. But they were not the only ones that we will have heard of that were held there because Donald Pleasance, Ooh, the yes. actor who was in, in the, the Great, Great Escape, Escape. Yes. and of course a baddie in the James Bond films, Absolutely. was held there for a, a while. And also, interestingly, a gentleman called Bernard Barker. I don't know this name. No, you wouldn't unless you are an aficionado of Watergate. Because he was one of the burglars. Oh, really? Yes. Oh. Now, it's a very niche <laughs> bit of information that he's not famous for the, for escaping or anything like that. But he was held at Barth and he would go on to be one of the burglars in the Watergate scandal. Well, there you go. So Shore seems to have got settled fairly quickly here. And, it, you know, he, he even made a point of noting that Red Cross parcels were coming in at a rate of one per man per month at this stage, which isn't actually dreadful. It was typically around about a fortnight. Yeah. One per man per fortnight. But one per man per month at this stage isn't awful. And he does go on to state that this would be improved later. Now, I particularly enjoyed his suggestions for Red Cross parcels and basically improvements on what can be made. Yeah. So he states that no carrots or McConaughey stew should be sent. Now, I wasn't particularly familiar with McConaughey stew. So I looked it up. And it is named after an Aberdeen-based McConaughey company who produced the stew and it was contained in tins. It's not wholly dissimilar to bully beef in the First World War. And it is more associated with the First World War. Okay. But it was still being made, produced and provided in the Second World War. Right. Now, it was a stew made up of carrots, turnips, potatoes, onions, haricot beans and beef in a thin broth. Oh, it's not selling it to me. No, not hugely. And uh, that may be the reason why he said no McConaughey stew in, in this recommendation. And it was actually fairly well known for producing a particularly noxious gas oh. at the other end, shall we say. Now, I think this is similar to the stuff they gave to tank crews and things like this. Mm. If it wasn't kept properly, it would congeal and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Oh, beautiful. It was, all, yeah, it was also known for having congealed fat substances at the top when they opened the tins. That's wonderful. Mm, yeah. Which, combined with... Things like haricot beans and what have you. I I imagine the fumes were pretty noxious once you'd been consumed and reproduced at the other end. So around about six months after he arrived at Stalluf 1, he noticed that there was a tunnel being started from the rubbish bin. So he approached the man who had started it. Now the method of digging this tunnel is quite interesting. Not not wholly dissimilar to the wooden horse in a way. So bear with me. At 10.30 every day, there was a football match that was held. The prisoners who were watching it used to stand up on the sloping top of the incinerator. Now, under this cover, they opened the trapdoor in the incinerator and let themselves in. So this is what I mean by it's not wholly dissimilar to Wooden Horse in that they've got the cover of sport, they've got the cover of conglomeration of prisoners of war to give them cover, and also dropping themselves inside an object in order to start a tunnel. So, having let themselves in, they were able to work from about 10.30 in the morning till about 5 o'clock at night. So they're actually able to get a fair amount of solid... amount of work in. Solid shift work in there. And at the end of the day's work, they were able to arrange to get another 12 or so people to stand there while they got out. Now, this is where I think it gets both quite entertaining but also quite interesting because the incinerator was divided into two parts. Now, they dug their tunnel out of one half, obviously, and threw the earth into the other half of the incinerator. Now, in some ways, that's almost too obvious. 
if you've got half an incinerator being filled with earth, you just assume that you'd look in the other half of the incinerator by definition. Because if, if, if this was spoiled from outside the incinerator, it'd be in both parts. Absolutely. So the fact that it's in one but not the other is a fairly strong indication that it, the tunnel was being started in that other half. However, when the Germans came to clear out the incinerator, they paid no attention whatsoever to the fact that one half was full of earth. They'd been told to look out for people hiding in the refuse cart, so they did not bother themselves with anything else. Interesting. Now, it's actually not uncommon for guards to ignore the obvious because they'd not been told to look for it. And we have come across people who've escaped, or at least attempted to escape, by hiding in the cart that takes the rubbish away. Yeah. And so they've been told to look out for this. By definition, they're not looking for the earth. So although it's right in front of their noses, they're just ignoring it. And this isn't the first time we've come across guards ignoring what's staring them in the face. Absolutely. So once the tunnel's completed, and they've completed it fairly quickly, they just had to wait for an air raid to take place between the hours of 8 o'clock at night and 2 o'clock in the morning. So that meant they had to be ready to go, because they weren't going to get prior warning of an air raid. So they must have no. had to been ready to go as soon as possible. I would have thought so, yeah. Take the opportune moment. Yes, exactly. Now, the reason for waiting for the air raid is both the lights are turned off, but also there's guard movement, which means they're not in their usual positions. So they're out of position, which means they're not looking for them in the usual places. Of course, that they're, taking, they're taking cover, potentially. Yeah, yeah, exactly. While the guards were trebled when an air raid warning was occurred, it took them about half an hour to get into position. Now, that's clearly an opportunity, that half-hour window. So around 10.30 at night on the 19th of October, they heard aircraft overhead. The air raid warning was sounded and the lights went out. So it sure went and warned the others who were going to try and escape with them that an air raid was on its way. And he then started crawling through a trapdoor in the hut to make his way towards the tunnel under the cover of darkness, because of course they now have darkness. So once he reached the tunnel, he found that there was six inches of water in it, which is unhelpful. But he managed to push through the trapdoor and make his way through the tunnel. Once he got out of the tunnel, so the tunnel didn't actually go out of the camp, it just made its way into the football field. Mm -hmm. Now, the relevance of that is the football field is outside the compound, but still within the perimeter. Yeah. But it's much easier to get out from outside the compound than it is Absolutely. even if it's still within the perimeter. Yeah. So having made his way to the football field, they then made their way to a ditch which was being dug around the outside for the purposes of putting barbed wire in. Mm -hmm. However, the barbed wire was not there yet, so it was just a ditch at this stage. So the timing had to be perfect here. Absolutely. But clearly they have achieved that. So having made his way over, he managed to crawl under the bottom wire of the perimeter fence. Because, of course, the security of the perimeter fence is much lower than the compound Absolute. security. Now, he had told a colleague that he'd wait for him for half an hour in a wood to the west of the nearby flax school. But while he was waiting, air raid ended and he saw the lights come on. And so he decided to set off down the main road towards Barth itself. Now, he squeezed the lemon over his boots and clothing to destroy the scents because the Germans used dogs and then started walking, passing a couple of members of the flax school itself on the way. As he got near Barth, he heard a car coming up behind him, so he rushed about 30 yards off the road and lay down. Upon reaching Barth, there was an archway through which the road went, and he, he could see that it, within the archway there was what he understood to be a lighted cigarette in the archway, so he turned off to right about 20 yards before he reached the archway to make his way towards another road, which rejoin the main road right in the middle of town. So he's effectively managed to avoid the guard by taking a artery road effectively. Yeah. 
So from there, he made his way towards the railway line, which went due south, and he marched down the road that adjoined this. Mm-hmm. So it was about th- three o'clock in the morning, and he got to just outside Stralsund at about 6.30 in the morning, and he decided to lie up for the day there and made his way into a wood nearby to spend the day. And while he did hear people around him throughout the day, he managed to stay undercover until that evening. So he he states, I started off again at around about 1800 hours and walked straight through Stralsund looking for a bicycle all the time, but I could not manage to get hold of one. Now, I don't think he was trying to purchase one here. I don't. No. no. So we have our first sighting of yet another bicycle theft effort. Now, he didn't succeed, but having made his way into central Stralsund, he managed to cross the bridge and then make his way onto another road adjoining the railway line. Now he again made another attempt to steal a bike but a a man came out of the hut opposite to where the bike was standing and chased him away. And in actual fact, he, he was followed by this man with a companion with a lantern, but luckily they didn't see him. He managed to get away with not getting away with the bike, if you see what I mean. I do, yeah. He stuck to making his way by foot, and so he followed the railway line through the night. Which actually does make sense, because A, there's not a lot of people going to be walking or travelling along the railway line other than the train, and you get plenty of warning if one of them's on their way. But it's also probably a pretty straight line, yeah. heading towards another major staging post. Absolutely. So it's not the worst idea in the world. So following the railway line, he walked through the night and made his way towards Bint's which he stated seemed like a summer resort, but of course in October was deserted. He could hear the breakers on the beach, and so he realised that he'd arrived fully at the coast. Now, Bintz is a further 40 kilometres from Stralsund, which in and of itself is 30 kilometres away from Barth. So he's actually made around about 70 kilometres in just a couple of days. Really good going. Yeah, he's making really rapid progress here. So having reached Bintz, he continued down the road into Sashnitz, which is only about a further 16 kilometres north of Bintz. So he's following the coast, effectively, due north to Sashnitz. And the railway line at Sashnitz went straight into the goods ferry yard. Now, he did turn off slightly earlier, but the idea was to effectively get a ferry from Sashnitz over to Sweden. Yeah. Because there is a running ferry. To this day, there is a ferry that runs from Sashnitz to Sweden. Oh, really? Indeed. Oh. I looked it up. Now, there had been a previous escape that had gone through here, and the information that they received was that the ferry left at 4.30 and that you had to hide under the tarpaulin. So he tried several times to take the ferry, but he kept on being chased away by guards from the Air Force. And he even saw a Swedish three-masted ship standing in the main quay, which he decided, having failed to get on the ferry that day, he thought he'd try and get onto the Swedish ship instead. Mm -hmm. So at around about 7 o'clock at night, he walked onto the Swedish boat, but there was a German SS guard standing on the deck, but eyeing him up suspiciously. So he effectively walked up to the sailor, asked him where the captain was, and effectively did a U-turn and walked straight back off the ship again. So at this point, he's tried and failed repeatedly to try and get himself onto either ships or ferries Mm -hmm. and to smuggle himself onto a friendly ship that can take him either to Denmark, which although occupied was certainly friendlier than northern Germany, or else directly to Sweden itself. So feeling pretty despondent, he took himself to the lavatory to have a wash and he states, I got into a second class carriage and went to sleep, not caring much if I was discovered. I woke up at midnight and then again at 0300 hours and got out of the carriage as I just realised that while there might have been a ferry at 4.30 in the afternoon, there might also be one at 4.30 in the morning. Ah, good thinking. Indeed. 
In fact, it was to prove crucial as he'd make his way down towards the ferry and saw a line of trucks waiting to be taken onto the ferry. So he managed to jump into a truck which was loaded onto the ferry just as the ferry was about to leave. So as the ferry then started off, it was about 3.30 in the morning. So he's had a fairly crucial mm. <laughs> bit of insight absolutely, at just the right moment. Otherwise, he could have been waiting another 24 hours, which is always risky in a, a seaport. And he states, during the voyage, the trucks were not searched. I spent the time sitting in the driving cab of the lorry that I was hidden in. So he's not even particularly hiding all that effectively. He's, he's hiding in plain sight. He's passing himself off as the driver basically, who presumably the real driver is up on the ferry having a quiet schnapps of a morning. Possibly. Yeah. yeah. And he then goes on to say, and he does, he really doesn't say much about the journey itself. I mean, usually when we, we talk about Baltic crossings, there's, they're hidden away in boilers or in a... Really horrible place. Yeah, yes. exactly. Cold bunkers. Yeah. Exactly. But because he basically sat in a warm truck the entire way, when it's not that far either. No. He basically says that when we arrived in Trelleborg, a man on a bicycle noticed me sitting in the cab of the lorry. I managed to slip out and tried to get out of the good yard, but unfortunately walked off in the wrong direction. I therefore went out through a gateway and was seen by a Swedish guard who came after me. Now, that's not exactly the end of the world because he's now in a neutral country and although he's been spotted yeah. he's been spotted and captured by a guard yes a swedish guard at that an excellent choice so he was taken into a small office where he declared that he was an escape prisoner of war and must speak to the british consul however they said that he could only speak to the british consul once he'd given an account of his escape so he, he wrote out a very brief account which he then stated that he could not give more detail until he saw the british council so the guards brought him food and he states very small meals at frequent intervals. And he then says that I discovered afterwards that when previous prisoners of war had escaped and arrived with them, they had given them a large meal and that had caused them to be violently sick afterwards. Now, I understand that's because the stomach shrink when they're on such small rations yes. in the prisoner of war camps themselves. Well, you, you see it with the liberation of the concentration camps. Indeed. They had to very carefully limit the amount of food that went in. Yeah. So having fed him, he then left for Stockholm at nine o'clock that night. So we're talking about only a couple of days after he's actually left. Mm. They gave him a first class ticket and 10 kroner to make his way towards Stockholm. He arrived in Stockholm at 0800 hours the next morning. So this is Sunday the 26th of October. So it took him exactly a week to reach Stockholm, which is pretty rapid. It's really rapid. Ad admittedly, you know, Barth is conveniently located, but he was travelling on foot towards the coast and then had to get himself onto a ferry. But he now finds himself in Stockholm only a week after he escaped. So he escaped on the 19th of October and this is the 26th of October. And he made his way towards the British legation. He was then to stay for another couple of days in Stockholm, leaving on the Tuesday night of the 28th of October and arrived back in the UK on the 29th of October. Which, as we said earlier, is only seven months almost to the day after he was captured on the 27th of March 1941. It's impressive, isn't it? It is, yeah. It is impressive. And of course, he brought back vital information for other potential escapers with that wonderful Red Cross form and everything that goes with it. Now, interestingly, he got the military cross for that escape. Did he? Yes, he did. And obviously, being still in the Air Force and quite early on, he continued to serve in the Royal Air Force, ending the war as a squadron leader, having also got the Air Force cross for gallantry in the air. Couldn't find the exact citation. There's a few London Gazette references for it. But yeah, gallantry in the air is what it said. And he carried on in the Air Force after the war as well, uh, going into training he flew the avro lincoln bomber which was follow-on from the lancaster bomber that we've all heard of mm -hmm. but unfortunately it wasn't to be a long career or indeed a long life because on the 15th of march 1950 he was tasked with a nighttime cross-country exercise from scampton out into the welsh mountains and back again and as it happened at about 
two, three o'clock in the morning, the, the area controller started diverting aircraft to go and land in RAF Valley in Anglesey because the weather just wasn't good enough to go back to Lincolnshire. And a number of the aircraft landed, but Shaw's aircraft did not. And the subsequent court of inquiry had determined that he'd misheard the instruction of turning 180 degrees as turn 80 degrees. And he actually flew into the mountains and his aeroplane impacted the hill, killing all on board, including Shaw. So he died quite a young, quite a young mm. man. Unfortunately, only a few years after the war. So he would have been only 32 when he crashed into that mountain and died, which is a shockingly young age. And of course, having already survived having to crash land and been taken prisoner and managed to escape and make his way back and then flew for another four years of the war. I mean, the odds of surviving that were pretty low especially in a bomber. Absolutely. And so to then die in such a tragic way in peacetime yeah, is is a real tragedy. However, he did have a fascinating escape. It, it does have echoes of other escapes, actually, as, as we mentioned. And he was not to stay a prisoner all that long, and he was to make his getaway pretty quickly too. So a man who seemed to live life at a fast pace and certainly escaped at a rapid pace too. Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at FYTWIO. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at FYTWIO podcast at gmail.com.